Thank you, Russell, uh, for leading us uh, through this morning. If you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first two verses for our um, message this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we're looking at verse 1 and 2, and you're going to see what the, uh, the Lord has for us this morning. And it says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no instance of backsliding more aggravated than that of probably uh, the Apostle Peter. And yet, no recovery was more of a signal to all who backslide that there is marvellous grace awaiting and to ignore it only increases one's sin to great sin. Someone said, while Peter's betrayal stands upon record, no traitor to the Lord and his master is justified in saying, the door of hope is closed against my return. The scriptures contain a number of instances in which the regrettable and disgraceful lapses of God's people are shown uh, to be followed by their complete recovery and restoration. And you can find a number of those throughout Scripture. The fellow I quoted a little earlier, he goes on to say, Frequently some characters, after they have been corrected and chastened by the Lord, have risen to positions of great eminence in his church. David in the Old Testament and Peter in the New while both illustrating the shame and sorrow of a backsliding state, stand forth as monuments of that sovereign grace which can forgive the penitent drifter and once more infuse into his heart the peace that passes all understanding. What a most remarkable thing this is. The opening words of this letter of Paul's reflect the redeeming grace of God. At the outset of this letter to the Ephesian church, Paul is presenting his credentials and that he has uh, them at the sovereign will of God. God chose him to be an apostle. I don't think Saul of Saul, who was walking along the road to Damascus, was hoping that God might choose him to be an apostle and a follower of Christ. He had other thoughts on his mind. But he now declares it was his sovereign will of God that made him the apostle that he is, or was. The word apostle means an ambassador, 
a, a delegate or someone who is sent. It's a position that draws respect, not worship. We know what an ambassador is because we send ambassadors to other countries and uh, they send ambassadors to us and they are the one who carries the message of the home country to the receiving country. This is the will of my home country about whatever is happening. So such a huge honour would be fertile ground for pride, something that some of the disciples had a problem with, especially when they saw that they had authority over demons, you remember. Jesus reminded them that it is far greater, there is a far greater blessing uh, to have their names written down in the heavenly book of life. What a remarkable blessing that is. Pride is not relegated to the pages of history, but is alive and well today. It belongs in the toolbox of the devil and sadly is sharp and ready for use at his cunning whisper. Sometimes God's God gives his people a burden to carry all their life to guard them against pride. God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to counter the natural rise of, hey, look what I did, or hey, look at what God did through me, or hey, listen to what people say about me and my ministry and what I'm doing for God. Pride is an insidious thing which leads us to love the praise of men rather than the approval of God. It leads us into a state of insecurity and we look for it even more because we are drinking from a well that does not satisfy the thirst because it cannot. Pride wants to be noticed and when others are being noticed it gets a visit from that green monster of jealousy. In his lack of understanding of the value of that thorn, Paul asked three times for the thorn to be removed, but the answer to his prayer was that God's grace was sufficient. Ponder that for a moment, will you? We do not need the praise of men, just the approval of God. God's grace is something we should be more aware of and if we are, we will not need the approval of men. What is the greatest value? Is it not what God, sorry, it is not what God does through me or what I do for God, but in fact, what God does in me. That's of the greatest value. The battleground is often said to be out there and in a sense it is out there and everywhere else also. However, if the inner battleground of self has not been conquered, the battleground anywhere else will never be won. Self wants to be noticed. It wants its dose of pats on the back. It is not looking for the natural biblical encouragement spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11 where it says therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. These are words that Paul wrote. A man who 
started out his life filled to the brim and overflowing with pride. It is looking for praise and worship. Self longs and fights for the throne of one's heart as Lucifer longed and fought for the throne of God. Self always will fight for the throne as that is fundamental to the original temptation. Self is crafty like its master, the devil, and can turn a work of God into praise of self. Hear what uh, happened in the early pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was craftier than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See how he twisted God's words there? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So self's desire is to be like God in charge of one's future. Self, as the Bible says, must be mortified if ever the Spirit of Christ is to reign in the heart of man. In Romans 8 verse 13 to 14 it says, For if we live after the flesh we shall die, but if we... Sorry, that's in the way. I'll shift it. Um, I'll start that again. For if we live after the flesh, we shall die. But if we, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, and I've changed this word here because it was a very old word, and the word used there simply means to covet ardently. Conspicuous or something rather like that. I, I can't even think of it now. Concubus. That's it, con compute. What he said. <laughs> but but it means it means to covet ardently. It's not just, oh, I like that. But it's, it's actually something that drives you to actually go and seek it, though it is not yours. But then he continues on with, and he uses the word covetousness, which is Id idolatry. So self breaks the first of the Ten Commandments and worships another god. One of the great British... Uh, Methodist theologian and biblical scholar Adam Clark writes this about uh, verse 14 and he comments on uh, the phrase uh, for as many as are led by the spirit and he says this no man 
who does not have divine assistance can neither find the way to heaven nor walk in it when found. As Christ, by his sacrificial offering, has opened the kingdom of God to all believers and as a mediator transacts their concerns before the throne, so the Spirit of God is, is the great agent here below to enlighten, to quicken, to strengthen, to guide the true disciples of Christ and all that are born of this spirit are led and guided by him. And none, he continues, can pretend to be children of God who are not thus guided. Pretty straight. And that's simply what the scripture says. For as many as are led by the spirit are sons of God. It's amazing how God can take a a big concept and just put it in few words when man has to use so many words to describe the same thing. Saul came to know well this great need to deal with the pride of the flesh. In him it produced a great murderous rage that took him on journeys to hunt down the followers of Christ and see them executed only to become a Jesus follower himself. And he then knew the joy of the suffering of the persecuted Messiah. Oh, what a radical change the grace of God brings to the repentant soul. In the opening words of chapter 1, the now Paul, who used to be Saul, you remember, the follower of Jesus, identifies himself and points out that he is writing to those who are in Christ. It is worthy to note the importance of that little word in throughout this, uh, throughout this chapter. In, uh, in, chapter, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This little word in is mentioned in relation to Christ and the Christian at least 11 times in this chapter alone. Must be important. It can suggest to those outside of Christ that being in Christ is an unimaginable blessing. As Paul is an ambassador or messenger of Christ, he begins to present the message God has for them. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this, the ambassador is declaring God's intention of peace and by implication that God has the power to maintain it. When we become Christians, we sometimes falter because we are trusting in our own ability to maintain this peace with God. But God himself is the one who has the power to maintain it. Not only give it, but maintain it. The opposite message this one-time persecutor carried, don't you think? Peace to you, saints in Ephesus. Peace to you, he says. Was that the message he carried on the road to Damascus? Hardly. 
A peace that comes by grace, by God himself paying the price for peace. This grace Paul speaks of attacks and renders impotent the self that is at war with God and thus sets the person free. That is what grace does in any circumstance. Grace pays the opponent's bill. And he then discovers a freedom that can only be found in the light of the truth of God. No more to be overcome by the devil's lie that we can be like God. Paul's letters major on the doctrine of grace and for good reason, given the prideful legalism that had attached him to a hateful, raging spirit that was determined to destroy the people of Christ the Messiah. What a radical change happened in the heart of Paul or Saul and continued in the heart of Paul throughout his life. The encounter with Jesus was a demonstration of a most marvellous and powerful grace where the persecuted called the persecutor to come on board. Lay down your sword, Jesus was saying, and come follow me. Let us be no longer enemies. Let us be family. Hear it from the Bible. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I've sometimes wondered the tone of voice that Jesus used. Was it a, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or was it, Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? I can, I, can, I can feel the love of Christ reaching out to this hate-driven persecutor. And he said, Paul said, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, can you imagine his state of mind at that moment? Trembling and astonished. Hearing a voice but seeing no one. And he said, Lord, what would you want me to do? Oh, what a change in that man's heart. You see, he was on the road to destroy these Jesus followers and there Jesus was calling him to come on board and then he, he complete change Lord what do you want me to do and then the Lord said to me said to him arise and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do that encounter with the creator of the universe brought immediate submission to his lordship after being born again, it took me a few years to discover that there was something called the Lordship of Christ. I mean, I discovered it in practice before I even knew the name of it. And it was a directional change for me. 
it was a change to the point where I began to understand this is not just a one-time event here, being born again. This is a this is a growing, this is a learning, this is an understanding of who this Jesus is. And not only who he is, but what he wants of me, what he what he has called me to do. But I do recall him as speaking to me as just a little boy, maybe seven or eight, as I was sitting in a Presbyterian church looking up at the Presbyterian minister right up there, you know, they used to have him up near the ceiling. <laughs> and, uh, and he said to me, you'll be up there one day, just as a little boy. God has spoken to me a few times over the years with such clear words like that. I didn't hear a voice or see anybody, but I just knew what God was saying. And I think Saul, he heard the voice audibly because those around him heard the voice too and they saw no one. But what a most remarkable thing it is that God should pick anyone and say, I want you. It is a sad fact that the Lordship of Christ is not spoken of very much these days when it is essential to a victorious Christian life. In this spiritual transaction, much is spoken of what we get, but what does God get? This is where the Lordship comes in. God, thank you for the blood of Christ which has cleansed me. I'm born again. But Lord, you are Lord of all my life. This is a struggle which we have because the flesh doesn't want to let go. What a great opening to a letter written by a former terrorist. Now a humble servant and leader of those whom he once terrorised, a man who would lay his life down for the gospel he once tried to snuff out. Does this reflect the life-changing power of an encounter with Jesus Christ? Paul knew what it was like to walk across that proverbial line in the sand and step from being controlled by the lie and being set free by truth himself. And all by grace, not by works. What a great letter this is to read and to feed upon. Look again at the opening remarks from Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Compare these words of Paul with the actions of Saul. Paul, an apostle of Christ, he says, formerly a persecutor of Christ and his people, now an ambassador for the kingdom of God. To the saints. Oh, now this is, this is good. There's so much wonderful stuff in the word of God. To the saints. Who I once hated with a great and intense hate 
and persecuted to death. These I now call saints of God. This word saint would not be a description that Saul would have given to the people of God for it means it means sacred. Uh, it can be describe it can describe the holy of holies. It describes the holy ones. It describes the holy place, and it uh, can be mean most holy. And it is applied to the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? To these saints who are the dwelling place of God. Are you a saint? Bible says you are if you are following Christ, if the Spirit of God is in you, that you are the dwelling place of God. Could you imagine Saul calling these people that he's hunting down saints, the dwelling place of God? You who are in Christ are the dwelling place of God. It, is, it suggests a great responsibility, such as an ambassador who must remember it is his job to reflect the wishes of his homeland. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the way things are done in heaven to be done in this world. It's our job to tell the world how God wants it to be run. A big responsibility to pray for. Who are faithful in Christ, he says. Was the faithfulness unto death of God God's people a goad to Paul's conscience? Maybe there is a testimonial witness there for us today. Think not of what you can do for Christ and his church, but what Christ longs to do in you. The inner self of Saul, the mocking persecutor, died that day. And the inner spirit of Paul Born in the name of Jesus Christ, the mighty evangelist for the kingdom of God. How long have you been a Christian, my friends? Do you still think you are going to do mighty things for God? If, uh, if you do, they will start in the death of the self-thinking life. And the resurrection of the life of the Spirit. Nevermore seeking to make known any other than Christ our Lord and our Saviour. The indwelling Holy Spirit will have it no other way. And until we submit to the Lordship of Christ, we will stumble along with the occasional time of happiness. Unlike the joyfulness of Paul. In every moment of every day, persecution or not. To conclude with Paul's testimony of who he is, written in Galatians and Colossians. Galatians 2 verse 20 and Colossians 1 verse 27. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again in Colossians, to them 
that is his saints he's talking to, to them God chose to make known the how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Christian has no other purpose in this world but to know God and to make him known. May God bless you, strengthen you, encourage you, and make you a bold witness for Jesus Christ in a very needy world. Amen. <laughs>